0: In 1997, a novel was released that garnered a lot of excitement and a lot of popularity, and that novel was written by a woman named J.K. Rowling, and it was titled Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, and it was released in the United Kingdom. She's British. And right away, it was a runaway bestseller, won all sorts of awards, and because of the success that it had in the UK, the publishers, they just couldn't wait to release the novel in the US. But the publishers, they had to ask J.K. Rowling to make some changes to the story. Not to the story, but to how it was presented. So they asked her to change the title from Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone to Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And the reason is, we should be ashamed as Americans, because they said Americans will not want to pick up a book about philosophy. We're just too dumb for that, you know? And they say, sorcerers, oh man, like that's exciting. But they say, we'll have to change it to philosopher. Americans aren't going to care about philosophy. Change it to sorcerer's stone. But they also, she had to go through and change words that are, the vernacular is British, and they wouldn't quite be understood in English. So she had to go through and she took the word, words dustbin and replaced it with trash can. Or dressing gown and replaced it with bathrobe. Or lavatory was replaced with bathroom. Ice lolly was replaced with ice pop, and then the Quidditch pitch. Quidditch is the sport they play in the story. The Quidditch pitch was changed to the Quidditch field, because Americans are like, what's a pitch? We don't know. And the story remained the same. Nothing really changed about the characters. Nothing changed about the story itself. Nothing about the plot was changed. But there were a few words and there were a few turns of phrase that were altered so that a different cultural audience could fully understand the story. Another example of that if Harry Potter weirds you out is the Pixar movie Inside Out. Has anybody seen that one? That movie was amazing. If you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. And in the story, there's you know there's the young girl, the little girl named Riley, and then there's a scene in the American version where she just refuses to eat her broccoli. And that, that makes sense to us as Americans. Well, in the Japanese version, that in that same scene, nothing about the dialogue changed except for she refused to eat her green bell peppers because apparently in Japan broccoli's not, is not as contentious of a thing with children, but green bell peppers are. That was changed. Nothing about the story was changed. Just something, an angle of looking at it was changed so that it could be understood. Now, for those of you who saw Endgame this week, you know that in that final scene when... Th- I'm just kidding. I'm not going to tell you. No spoilers. <laughs> What's my point? The point I'm trying to make is that I believe that the message of Jesus... The message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is good news to all people and all cultures. In fact, when Jesus came from heaven, the angels announced in Luke chapter 2, they said, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. And I believe the message of Jesus is good news to every person on the planet, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of the culture they grew up in, regardless of the country they were born in or the language they speak. But because we were all born in different cultures and we all have different upbringings and we all have different experiences in our life, we all hear the story of Jesus differently. We all hear, because our culture where we grew up, how we were raised, experiences in our lives. And so different aspects of what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus, speak to different people. And so uh, anthropologists and sociologists, for example, have found that every person in every culture can generally be understood to be driven by one of three major emotions. Now, this is, you know, when you talk categories and everything's blurry and we all, everybody fits into every category, but every culture and every person tends to be driven by one of these categories, one of these major emotions. The first is shame. And if you're driven by shame, if you grew up in a shame-based culture, maybe perhaps your greatest goal in life is to have honor among your group your greatest fear then would be to be seen as an outcast or to bring dishonor to your family or to your community see shame is a relational concept Um shame is experience it, it has to do with relationships and how we experience relationships shame cultures are very common in asian cultures if you we have many people who grew up in asian cultures. you understand shame honor cultures i would even argue that um, small towns maybe in the rural south or in the midwest i grew up in this in a small community in the south, those are group-oriented cultures, and so there's shame-based cultures. And so, the, the thing you don't want to do is bring shame on the name of your family or on the name of your group. Um, shame is understood in terms of relationships or letting other people down. The, another uh, way we understand where emotion that drives us is guilt. And if you're driven by guilt, then your greatest goal in life is to be worthy, to be seen as successful. And guilt is about independence. It's about yourself being good and independent. And the greatest fear of somebody who's driven by guilt is that they would be, never be seen, they would be seen as unworthy, that they would not measure up. And this is very common in American culture. Sociologists, anthropologists say that America is a guilt-based culture. Um, we're highly individualistic. We see everything in terms of black and white, and right and wrong, and guilt is individual in nature. I am worthy because I have done right, or I have succeeded, or I am unworthy because I have done wrong. Whereas shame, on the other hand, is I feel unworthy because I am wrong. That's the difference. And then another example would be fear. Um, many cultures are driven by fear. Many lives, many of our lives are driven by fear. And if you're driven by fear, the greatest goal is to be powerful, to have and to have peace. And your greatest fear would be to be weak. And this is common, anthropologists say, in African cultures or in Caribbean cultures at times. And here's an example of the difference between shame and guilt and fear cultures, of how we interpret different experiences. Uh, last year at the, in the, at the U.S. Open, Naomi Osaka defeated Serena Williams at the U.S. Open. You guys remember this? And Serena was the... F- some of you were there. Um, and Serena was the favorite, I mean, everybody wanted Serena to win, it's an American crowd, it's the U.S. Open, it's right here in New York, it's Serena Williams, she's an American, she's playing in front of Americans, she was the one everybody wanted to win. Not only that, she was just coming back from having a child, and so there's like that, like, like female empowerment kind of story that's like, hey, she came back from having a child, now she's going to win the U.S. Open, it was a great story, but in the finals, serena williams met naomi osaka and the match actually ended with a controversial call and the crowd went wild and they were booing and it was the crowd was upset that serena didn't win but naomi osaka she won the u.s open it was her first grand slam i think and most americans like they wouldn't care even if they were the villain and they won the match they're not going to care are they like i think of like dennis rodman with the bulls like he didn't care that everybody hated him he was just like it's about me it's about me but Naomi Osaka, she's half Japanese and half Haitian. She grew up in a shame-based culture, a shame-honor culture, and a fear-power, and with a fear-power culture within her family. And you would expect an American, even though everybody's booing them, that they would say, you know what, I don't care. I'm the champion, I won fair and square, and then they throw, get the haters out of my way, right? You know what Naomi Osaka said? As she stood on the top podium, they gave her the microphone and she accepted her trophy and she said, I am so sorry to all of you who came out tonight and didn't get the result that you wanted. See, she was thinking about the group. She was, and she was ashamed that she had, even though she won, like her dreams came true, she was ashamed that she had let the group down from the shame side, and, she, and from the peace, or from the fear and the power side, she was ashamed that she had disturbed, disturbed the peace. Cultural background differences. All that to say, we're starting a new sermon series today called Good News for All People. And my goal over the next few weeks is to show you how the message of Jesus, the gospel, is good news to you, to every one of you. If the thing that plagues you and drives you in your life is shame, I want you to see over the next few weeks how Jesus overcomes your shame and bestows honor upon you. If the thing that plagues you is guilt, I want you to see how Jesus overcomes your guilt and calls you worthy. And if the thing that plagues you is fear, I want you to see how Jesus overcomes your fear and gives you peace and power. See, the message of Jesus is always the same. It's always constant. He lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. But I want us to consider how it speaks to us in all these different ways. How Jesus speaks to every nation, tribe, tongue, language, and culture, and every person. The message remains the same, but the way it's presented and the way it's interpreted is often different and it needs to be presented in such a way that every person can understand the full beauty of what Jesus has done for us and today I want us to consider how Jesus overcomes our shame and you see in the scriptures, I'll give you just an overview of how shame enters into the story of the scriptures in the very beginning of the Bible God is seen as the creator of all things God is powerful, He's respected, He's faithful Everything he creates is good. He has nothing but honor. But he chooses not to remain alone in his creation. Father, Son, and Spirit, one in three, three in one, created the world, but they did not want to remain alone, so they created humanity, a man and a woman, and gave them, bestowed upon them, honor and authority and glory and dignity and a name. They were God's children. They lived with him. They walked with him in his good, created world. The scriptures say that life was good and that they were in perfect relationship with God. It says that the the humans that God created, Adam and Eve, it says they were naked and not ashamed. They were fully seen, fully known, yet they felt no shame. But they, they sought greater glory than God. They were disloyal to him, they chose to disobey him, and they sought glory for themselves over God, over their father. And in effect, they shamed themselves and they brought shame unto God. They dishonored God. They brought shame upon their creator, shame upon their father. And when they did this, the scriptures say that their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and that they were ashamed for the first time. And it says that they hid themselves, they covered themselves. Genesis 3 picks up in the narrative. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of his garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. He blame shifted. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is that that you have done? And the woman said, oh, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. She blame shifted. See, they brought shame into God's creation. They shamed themselves, but they also brought shame onto God's name. So God sent them away, and they left the garden with no glory, no honor, no authority, only shame. And then they had children and grandchildren and on and on and on and descendants, which leads to us. We're descendants of the first humans, and we inherit their shame. And we add to it with our own disloyalty and our own disobedience, and so we all have a sense of shame and that you know this is true even if a story about a garden and a serpent and a tree you're like i don't know if i can get my head around that you know that you carry with you a sense of shame you know you have a feeling deep in your gut that if people truly knew who you were if you were fully known and fully seen that you would be unwelcome You. this is deep within our we all feel naked and ashamed in some way we feel that deep down if people knew us for who we really were they would not want anything to do with us see this is why we project certain images of ourselves this is why whether it's through social media it's why we take the picture and then we look through every possible filter we can find we find the perfect angle so that we can present ourselves perfectly to the world, or if you're like, that's not me, I don't take selfies, if you're like me, like, I I, I don't post pictures of my kids throwing tantrums in my apartment, which is what happens, like, 85% of the time, the pictures I post are, like, this perfect family and everything, people will say, they're like, oh, man, your family is just so perfect, and you guys love each other, and you've got the perfect family, Will, and I'm like, you only see what I want you to see, we're, half the time, I'm just stressed out, And half the time, I'm hiding in the bathroom, you know, because I just, my kids are driving me nuts. That's reality. But I'm afraid if people saw that, they might think less of me as a father, or they might think less of, you know, whatever. And so we use social media to present a version of ourselves that we think people will accept. Because we're afraid if they saw the real us, we would would not be welcome, we would not be accepted. Or sometimes we fake emotions back to my family. I know those of you who grew up going to church, or those of you who brought kids to church today, you it's time to go to church, right? And you are... It's hard getting ready for church in the morning, and your kids aren't putting the clothes on, and then one of the kids you know, messes the diaper right before you leave, and you can't find the shoe, and the kid won't get their jacket on, and you're stressed out, and the whole way you're walking to church, you're just jabbering at each other, you're mad at each other, and the husband and the wife, they're mad at each other, and then you walk through the church doors, and then you put these big fake smiles on your face, and you're like, hey, how you doing, guys? God is good. Because you don't, because you're afraid that if church people saw you fighting with your spouse, that they wouldn't you'd be unwelcome in this place. Other times, it, we pursue certain measures of success that our family or our culture sees as acceptable or honorable, and so we pursue success, we pursue material things, we pursue degrees, we pursue education. I mean, all this sort of stuff. We pursue something as a way to hide our shame. And as a culture, and this is what I mean when we talk about group cultures, as a culture, we, we, uh, we perpetuate this. Because as groups, as a culture, we typically honor those who obey the expectations of the group culture. We elevate those who do the things we say are honorable. And then we often shun or shame those who don't live up to the expectations of the group. And all this does is creates more shame. More insecurity, because all of us know that we never measure up fully. And if we're accepted by the group, we're afraid that it's only a matter of time before they find out that we're not what we present ourselves to be. And if for whatever reason we have been cast out by the group, we feel insecurity that well, are we ever going to be accepted again. And we all want what Adam and Eve had, which is full acceptance, full approval, to be without shame that desire to stand before God and others and be fully seen and fully known, yet fully welcomed and fully accepted. See, we all want honor, yet we all feel shame. So what do we do with our shame? We do the same thing that Adam and Eve did. We hide, we keep secrets, and then we blame shift. And we try to act as if the things we feel ashamed about are not really our fault. If, the, you know, if my wife had just, or if my friends had just, or if I just had, and we hide behind our work, our degrees, our lies, our families and our projections of who we want to be, hoping that these things will shield us from people from people seeing who shield us from people seeing who we really are. And then when we're exposed, we shift the blame. It's not my fault. It's other people's fault. We come up with excuses. And the question that we all have to wrestle with is how can we have our shame lifted because this is what we all want to know that we can stand before God and others without shame. But the good news of the scriptures, one of the most quoted scriptures in the Bible is Isaiah 28, 16, and it shows up in Romans 10, 11, where Paul says, For the scriptures say, Everyone who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is God's answer for our shame. But how so? Let's look at another story. Mark chapter 1. It says, And a leper came to Jesus, this is verse 40, imploring him and kneeling and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Sorry. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But the man went out and began to talk freely about what Jesus had done and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, the first thing you need to understand about this story and how it relates to shame and honor is you gotta understand the culture in which this happened. See, at this time in history, there is nothing that would have been scarier than contracting leprosy. We don't, leprosy is just not a thing for us in American culture, but leprosy was a skin disease. It was chronic, it was debilitating. It would have caused you to have these ugly, nasty sores all over your body. It would have caused your fingers and your toes to fall off if you had it long enough. And if you lived with leprosy long enough, you would eventually become to look like a monster. Um, And I'm not exaggerating. I don't encourage you to Google image search leprosy. But if you did, you would understand why rabbis in the first century called lepers the living dead. It looks like something out of like The Walking Dead. And the first century historian Josephus says that a leper was in no way different from a corpse they were the walking dead but it was more than just a physical disease it was a social disease Leviticus 13 shows what the law required of a leper and when a leper uh, the, the life of a leper a leper would they would have to wear torn clothes and they would have to wear they would they, they, they could not fix their hair they could not fix their appearance because they had to show themselves publicly to be people that were unclean and they had to live alone they had to live outside of the city in a camp because it was highly contagious. And if they came within 50 paces of another human being, a leper, if they, came, if they walked into a crowd, they were required by law to shout, unclean, unclean, I'm unclean. And they would watch as they entered a room or entered a courtyard or entered into a city as people would scatter in their presence because nobody wanted to be near someone who was unclean. Nothing would have been more humiliating, more embarrassing, more shameful. To be a leper was to live with constant shame. And honor in this culture, this first-century Jewish culture, honor in this culture was found in being clean through religious obedience. The way that someone was d- d- developed honor within this culture was that they through strict religious obedience, which required the, all these cleanliness rituals in the synagogue or in the temple. But because the leper was seen as unclean. And because nothing unclean could enter the temple, they could not obey the religious rituals, which meant that not only were they cast out, and they weren't able to be in crowds and quarantined to live among other lepers, but there was literally no possible way in which they could earn honor for themselves because they could not enter the temple. They could not enter the synagogue. But here comes this man who's a leper, but he hears about this man, Jesus, who's healed the sick, who's healed the blind, and he, he eats with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards. And he, he's not, a, he doesn't, here's a man that doesn't seem to be ashamed of shameful people. And so this man hears of Jesus and he knows that Jesus is in town. And the man disregards all the laws. He walks into the crowd, actually breaks the law as he was walking to where Jesus was, which in a moment you'll see Jesus was likely near the synagogue. And he probably would have heard people screaming at him get out of here, get out of here. They would insulting him. You're a leper, you're shameful. The living dead, a walking corpse, get away from us, don't make us unclean. You shouldn't be here. They would have hurled shame upon shame upon shame on him for leaving his place. But he endures the shame to get to Jesus. And he gets to Jesus and he says, if you will, not if you can, he knew Jesus could. He says, but if you will, Will you heal me? He knew Jesus could, but the question was, would Jesus, a rabbi, heal a man like him, a man who was covered in shame? And what does Jesus do? It says he stretches out his hand, touches him, and says, oh, I will. Be clean. Listen, you don't touch lepers. It was contagious. It was unlawful. It was socially unacceptable, especially for a rabbi like Jesus to touch lepers a leper and here's the thing jesus didn't even have to touch this man we see other times where jesus heals somebody from a distance or where jesus heals somebody through words or he heals somebody i mean without even touching them but he knew jesus knew that this man needed to be touched to receive full healing not just from his sickness but the healing from the pain of being untouchable He needed to know that he was not too shameful to enter into the presence of Jesus, that Jesus was not swayed by his shame, but rather Jesus puts an arm around him. Jesus doesn't simply heal the man's sickness, but he heals the effects of the sickness. He removes the man's shame. He removes the pain that the sickness has caused. He removes the social stigma. And Jesus then bestows honor upon the man by reaching out and touching him. I want you to see just how amazing this is. The man had a contagious disease. People feared that if he touched him, they would become unclean. I remember one time when we used to live um, in, when when my wife and I lived in the suburbs, we had a yard. I miss my yard. I love New York with all my heart, but I miss my yard. But I don't miss yard work, okay? Okay. But one day I had mowed the yard, it was real hot, and so I was sweaty, and the, you know, the grass was sticking all over me. I walked in the house, and I went to give my wife a big hug and a kiss, and she said, don't touch me, you're unclean. I said, baby, that's what, like a Pharisee, you sound like a Pharisee. Because she was, she knew that if I touched her, she would get, she would be unclean. And that's exactly what, in that day, that's exactly how they viewed shame. If someone who had been cast out in shame touched someone who was pure, then the person who was pure would, become, would inherit the shame. If something un, but that was the religious thought of the day. If something unclean touched something clean, then both would be compromised. But in the kingdom of God, if something unclean touches Jesus, that thing becomes clean. And now what Jesus does next is amazing. He tells the man, he tells him to go to the synagogue and wash this is a place that this man had not been allowed in for years and he can now enter in because he was healed and his shame had been removed and now he could enter into a place of honor Jesus' touch changed his story from man of shame to man of honor he was able to walk into the synagogue walk into the temple with confidence because he was clean he went from outcast to the place of highest honor from shame to honor and this is what I want you to see that Jesus removes our shame By offering us his honor. And because of the cross, because of the resurrection, our shame can be turned in to the honor of Jesus. Jesus brings, this is what happens, Jesus brings our shame upon himself so that we can have his honor. No other rabbi in Palestine in the first century would have been caught anywhere near this man. But Jesus not only allows the man in his presence, but he touches him and heals him and gives him back his life and restores him to a place of honor. Now, what I want you to see is how the story ends. It ends with Jesus, and he's like, hey, man, don't tell anybody about what I just did. Don't tell anybody that I healed you. Now, why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus say, don't tell anybody this? The reason is because Jesus didn't want to be known as a miracle worker, as a man of power. Jesus didn't come to demonstrate his power, but to offer his life for the sake of the world. And Jesus knew that if all this word got around about it, then they would put him to death. And he knew his time was it wasn't his time yet to die. This was early in his ministry. So Jesus tells the man, he says, hey, look, I just healed you, go to the synagogue, but hey, let's keep this between me and you. It says, verse 45, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news. You know, it's like, you're like you had one job, man. You had one job and he's going out and he's talking about it. But it says, look, because the man started telling everybody about what Jesus had done, It says that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. But he was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. See, that leper was so excited about his perfect new skin. He was so excited that he was going into the synagogue and he was hanging out with the priest. That he tells everyone. And now everybody starts chasing Jesus. They want something from him. They started wanting something from Jesus. And because of the crowds, Jesus had to leave town. And that's how the story ends. At the beginning of the story, Jesus is in the center of town. Jesus is at the center of the story. He's in the place of honor, and the leper is on the outskirts of town. He's isolated, he's outcast, he's in a place of shame. He's not allowed to be in the place of honor, but at the very end of the story, they've switched places. The leper is in the place of honor, and Jesus is now in lonely and desolate places. That is the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. Jesus takes the position that we deserve so that we can receive his holiness. We give him our sin, our shame, our sorrow, our loneliness, our guilt. We give him the cross, but he gives us the resurrection. He gives us eternal life, a place in heaven, healing, blessing the world tries to say to us when we fail shame on you but the message of Jesus is let me take the shame off of you and put it on myself see Jesus left heaven and came to earth Jesus left the right hand of God the Father to die at the hands of men God became human in Christ he left the place of highest honor to become human And Jesus, in his ministry, when he would teach and when he would preach, he would would often speak of a great feast in eternity where the disregarded and the dismissed would be honored guests. And the privileged and the religious and those in authority hated that because it threatened them, because they had created a structure where they had the place of honor because they did the right things, and all the people who did the shameful things could not come into their presence. They had created this structure of how honor was bestowed upon someone, and they felt righteous, and they felt self-righteous, and they felt that they could look down on other people. And Jesus comes in and says, no, in the great banquet, the one in the kingdom of God, the dismissed And the despised and the shameful will be the honored guests. And this threatened and upset the privileged and the religious, so they killed Jesus. See, Jesus wasn't killed because he was a nice guy. Jesus was killed because he upset the status quo. And he upset the structures and the systems that we make to hide our shame. And Jesus says, there is nothing you could do to ever hide your shame other than be hidden in me. They shamed him, they mocked him, they spit on Jesus, they cursed him, they abandoned him. He was literally covered in our shame. But he defeated that shame when he rose from the dead. And Philippians 2 says, Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Father took the shame of Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus defeated that shame in the resurrection, God then bestows the highest honor upon Jesus. God shows that your shame can be turned into his glory. And Jesus then builds a bridge so that we can now enter into God's presence. We can go from death to life. We can go from earth into the kingdom of heaven. We can go from shame to honor. Romans ten nineteen says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you'll be saved saved from what verse 10 and 11 tell us for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved for the scriptures says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches, his honor, and erasing the shame of all those who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, the hope of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, our shame can be traded for his honor. That his name, his glory, his authority, his honor, all of that, those things which we lost when we disobeyed God, those, the, and, we, and we brought shame onto ourselves and on him, all those things can be restored. Our shame can be, can be traded for his honor. The question is, is will you receive that honor? And some people, some of us, some of you will live your lives content with false honor. You'll keep pursuing earthly forms of honor and think you don't need Jesus. I can can cover my shame with success. I can cover my shame with education. I can cover my shame with relationships. I can cover my shame with this and that and whatever. And we will pursue and we will be content with false honor. God says that's not enough. But some of us will feel too ashamed to give our shame to Jesus. We keep trying to hide from him. See, this is what's you know anybody who's a recovering alcoholic, or anybody who's been sober for years, or anybody who's overcome some addiction, they'll tell you the only way to defeat an addiction, a habit, is to bring it out in the open. There, I mean, like that you can't defeat things if you keep hiding them. I mean, the AA, whether it's a secular version of AA or it's a you know Christian version of sober recovery, it will all say that you, you cannot hide a something in your life and expect to overcome it. But many of us will keep those things hidden because of the shame that we might experience if we bring it to light. And so some of us feel too ashamed to actually give our shame to Jesus. But the, thing, the story of the leper shows, is an example for us. He didn't stay in hiding. He didn't stay in the outside of the community. He made himself vulnerable. He put himself out there he put his shame in front of the community can you imagine him leper walking through the crowd going straight toward Jesus and people are going what are you doing walking toward a rabbi like that who do you think you are get out of here get out of here but he walked through the community to get to Jesus he endured the temporary shame of being seen and being vulnerable so that he could experience the permanent honor of Jesus restoring him and that's what many of us need to do we need to get over our pride and we need to be vulnerable, and we need to say, look, here are the things I'm ashamed of, but I'm trusting that Jesus will replace those things with his honor and that he can help me overcome my shame. Some of us just fear what other people think. We fear further shame of following Jesus, so we, for, for, we fear, uh, we're afraid that if we become a follower of Jesus, if we, if we give ourselves to Jesus, we become afraid of what other people would think. And so what we do is we trade the honor of, the, of other people of lesser people and forfeit the honor that is offered to us from God because we're afraid of what other people might think the leper though he endured the scoffs of the crowd to receive a greater honor question is what will you do with your shame what are you ashamed of what what shame are you bringing in and what will you do with it will you continue and try to cover it with other pursuits or will you hide your shame and never bring it to light or will your fear of man be greater than your fear of God and will you Never give your shame to God because you're afraid of what other people might say. Or will you, like Jesus, carry your cross, like this leper, endure the shame so that you can receive the reward of Jesus? Pray with me. God in heaven, thank you that on the cross you defeated our sin, our shame. Uh, God, you became shame for us so that our shame could be removed. God you took our cross so that we could have your resurrection you came to earth so that we could enter into your kingdom and so God whatever we whatever anyone in this room is bringing here whatever they're ashamed of whatever they feel like separates them from you and from others whatever makes them feel unacceptable or untouchable God would you show them that your touch brings honor and that we can give you the thing we're most ashamed of and because of Jesus we can receive his honor. And when you look at us, you don't. and because we're hidden in Christ, you don't see our mistakes, you don't see our shame, but you see the glory of Jesus and you allow us to enter into your kingdom. And it's in your name we pray, amen.